Well, so good to see everybody. We took a week off last week. It was terrible, right? It was so sad. Um, how many of you are on spring break right now? Anybody on spring break right now? Come on, come on. How many of you are already back to the grind of studying and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody go to the beach for spring break? All right. Well, we, um, we had a chance last week. If you were here a couple weeks ago, you know that we sent last week, we sent a group of 20 uh, of you guys to Guatemala on a mission trip. Just keep hearing so many unbelievable things that God did through them and in them. And so hopefully in the next few weeks, we're going to have an opportunity for you to hear some stories of what happened, for you to hear uh, from them. I'm super excited to, uh, for you guys to hear all that kind of stuff. Um, if you know, last week we were out, uh, a special thing happened for me and my family. We, um, <laughs> we welcomed our second son into the family. And so his name is Kyler. So we got Cade and Kyler. There he is right there. And um, so he was born on oh look at that unbelievable so he came on Wednesday and so we've been just kind of walking that journey mom and baby are healthy and so all is well just adjusting to a little sleep and uh, now having two little guys he doesn't do much he just lays there and doesn't do anything but um it's awesome. We love it. Thank you for all of your kind texts and messages and comments, everything. It was just so encouraging to know that you guys were behind us and praying for us. So, so grateful. Hey, I'm really, really pumped. I was telling some people earlier about what's coming up the next few weeks here at C12. We are entering into just kind of a set of conversations that we're going to have around this idea. We're calling this series, Why Jesus? And really, it's kind of a, um, it's an apologetic kind of series, and our, and our hope, our goal is to, one, give you some, like, backing behind why, why should you trust Jesus with your life? And I don't know if you're into kind of the theological aspect of faith. Some, I know some people are all about it. Some people are like, yeah, it's really new to me. don't have much. We're hoping to just unpack for the next few weeks of why Jesus we believe Jesus is the one that you should choose to follow. And so we're going to have some really cool, exciting talks about that, one of which, I mean, the next two weeks are going to be incredible. I want you to come. The last week, March 28th, I'm excited to announce that our senior pastor, Kevin Myers, is going to be with us. On um, So I will not tell him of how weak of applause that was. I'll tell him that you guys went nuts. Um, it's a really exciting time. I'm pumped to have him on March 28th. But the next two weeks are going to be incredible just leading up to that night and really laying some foundational stuff. And, and really our hope is not, if you have questions about why should I choose Jesus, man, I, we're praying that they get answered. But not only that, we know the world that you live in, the schools that you go to, you probably have tons of friends that are asking questions about why should I choose Christianity or why should I follow this man named Jesus. You may have professors that are leading you to other things. And so we just want to give you some tools in your belt to help you go, no, this is why. Because I think a lot of times we focus on like the feeling of Jesus. And when we come into worship, it just get caught up in this feeling. And I can feel God moving in my life. I can feel him doing things in me me and he's changed me in these ways but sometimes I think we um, 
maybe we disengage a little bit from the intellectual side of why I'm choosing Jesus in my mind. And so we're going to have some of those talks for the next few weeks that I'm super pumped about. And so tonight I've asked a good friend of mine to start us off, and his name is Steve Walton. And Steve, um, Steve, you can come on up. Steve, I want you to meet Steve. Steve has been around 12 Stone for a little while. In fact, Steve, I was thinking the yeah. other day, me and you have known each other for now, it's coming up on like six years. Yeah, six years. We so, started as lowly residents. Lowly residents. No offense, and now, Alex and Sierra. Yeah, no offense um, to all the lowly residents so out there. But, we, uh, were, we were basically <laughs> interns here at 12 Stone together. Yeah. And uh, that was a long time ago. Steve has spent some time as a student pastor here. Mm -hmm. He was the Sugarloaf Campus Pastor. If you live, I know some of you were out there. And uh, just recently has moved over to our Buford Campus. Buford Campus. Um, and so he's the Buford Campus Pastor. Four. I think we have four, we have Buford. four Buford people. Yeah, yeah, Buford people here. It's go. good. Um, it's good. They're all stuck up. And <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Wow. It's a joke. Wow. It's a joke. Um, oh, man. That's funny. Anyway, so <laughs> the reason I invited Steve, and he may share with you some of this, the reason I invited him is I heard Steve uh, talk about a few things, a couple, I guess it was a couple months ago now, talk about yeah. some things on this topic. And I was like, man, you got to come share some of that with our students because I just think it's right up uh, this series, it's right up the alley of this series and what I believe that um, we need as a group. So good, excited man. to have you, man. Thanks for coming. We all Dude, welcome once you. again, Steve. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate it, man. That's good, man. Well, hey, it's fun to be with you guys. Uh, you guys are a lot of fun and you sing loud. I like really appreciate that because I'm a loud singer. Anyone else like you just sing way too loud? You make the people around you uncomfortable? Yeah, that's me. And so it's good to be with friends because we can all make people around us uncomfortable together. So this is, uh, this is good. Hey, uh, some of you I know, some of you I'm friends with. Uh, others of you I don't know yet. So I want to just tell you a tiny bit about me and then we're going to stop talking about me. We're going to talk about you. So um, before I became a pastor, I was a, uh, I was a college student as well. I went to the University of Georgia. Hey, whoa, now, come on. Yeah. Okay, so here's the deal. Let me explain this picture, okay? Um, yeah, you know those people that paint up on the front row? That was me, okay? And so we were featured in a magazine, Real Talk. Look at this. Can you guys tell which one I am? That's right, red hair with the R. We're going to zoom in on that. Uh, yeah, just angry, just, mm, you know? So if you've ever wondered what those guys do after college, we become pastors. That's what, that's what they do. No, uh, it was fun. Actually, this is fun. If you have any friends that normally go to C12 and they weren't here tonight, you can tell them this. You can say, the guy that spoke, he was in a magazine shirtless one time. It was like, he was awesome. So anyways, you can tell your friends that, well, don't tell them about me painting up. Just say I was shirtless, okay? And I look better than Austin's. Tell them that and they won't believe you. And I don't believe you either. Okay, anyways. Um, so then while I was there, I met a uh, woman named Catherine, and I uh, asked her on a date and eventually asked her to marry me, and she said yes. Obviously, otherwise I wouldn't be telling you this, okay? She said yes. And uh, so now we've been married for a little, like almost 12 years. This is our family. That is Judah. He's three years old now. He's the big Superman. And then Anchor is the little Superman. He is six months old now. So that's our little family of four. Two boys. Where's Austin at? Two boys, bro. That's the way to do it, okay? Two boys, it's fun. Um, let, me, let me tell you a little bit about the family. So that's the family that we have right now. I want to tell you a little bit about the family that I, that I grew up in, OK? 
okay? Uh, the family I grew up in might look similar to maybe the family that some of you grew up in. We went to church all the time. It was like the thing that you did, especially, you know, growing up in the South, we went to church. It was a really small, little, like, 100-person church, and so we were there Sunday morning, and then Sunday night, we had a separate service that was different for whatever reason, and sometimes we had food, which was great, and so uh, I would do that, and then Wednesday, we'd go, and we'd hang out there as well, but at home, we never talked about Jesus, you know what I mean? Like, we went to church, but we never really did Talked about, um, talked about Jesus. Well, then I remember when I was 12, I went to this student ministry retreat. And uh, while I was there, I met a guy named Matt. Matt was uh, in college just like you are. Matt was my leader. And Matt had this relationship with Jesus. And it was so weird to me because I was used to talking about Jesus at church. But I wasn't used to talking about Jesus while, like, throwing the football. Like, that was new to me. And so I was like, man, it's, he talks about Jesus like he knows Jesus. Like, he's got a friendship with Jesus. And that was kind of my introduction to faith. And so that weekend, I trusted Jesus as my Savior, and it changed everything for me. And I remember coming home, and I remember thinking, like, you know, my family, they go to church. I have two brothers and, you know, my parents, and they all go to church. So it's like, now I'm a part of the team. You know what I mean? It's like, now I'm a Christian, just like they are Christians. And so I went home, and and it was good. And, And then about three or four months later, my dad sat our entire family down. It was me, my mom, and my two brothers. And he'd never done this before, but he sat us down in the living room. And he told us, essentially, that he doesn't really believe in Jesus. And we just kind of went to church, and he just kind of did that for the past couple of years because he didn't want to, he wanted to, like, save face, didn't want anyone to question. But the truth is, he didn't believe in Jesus. He didn't believe in the God of the New Testament, and he had a lot of questions and a lot of doubts. And I remember being so confused as a little 12-year-old because I'm going, I thought, I thought we were in this together, you know? And then a few months after that, my mom and both of my brothers essentially said the same thing. They said, yeah, we don't really believe that either. And so I remember coming home from the retreat thinking I was like joining the family, you know? I was joining the team. And then I found out I was the only one on the team. That they didn't really believe in Jesus. And that's hard for a 12-year-old. Like I looked up to my dad and my mom and my two older brothers and that was hard. But then the thing that made it even more difficult was a few months after that, my dad, who was maybe in his mid-40s at the time, he would sit me down about once a week, and he would talk about his doubts, and he would tell me all the reasons that he didn't believe in Jesus, and he took these 45-year-old doubts that had been developing for the past 30 years, and he put them on this little 12-year-old. And he would say things like, you know, why on earth would, would God use the country of Babylon to punish Israel and then all of a sudden just cast Babylon aside? Doesn't God care about people? Why would he do that? And my dad would ask these questions that I didn't really know how to answer. And it was all of his doubts that I didn't really know how to wrestle with. And I remember one time he asked me, he said, um, hey, how did Judas die? And I was like, well, he like hung himself, right? And he goes, well, according to one gospel writer, but what about the other one that said Judas plunged headlong into a field? How do you reconcile that? And I remember being 12 and just hearing these questions from a man that I loved and respected. And I was like, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't believe in this. His doubts were way bigger than my doubts. Maybe his doubts are kind of like your doubts. And that's why he didn't believe. And for me, it felt like my world was falling apart because the faith that I had signed up for was all of a sudden being questioned. And I was full of the doubts of a 45-year-old man. And there was only one thing that I could go to while I was doubting. There was only one event that I would cling to. It was, like, it was like my anchor in the storm, and my anchor was the resurrection. I had to go to the resurrection of Jesus, an event that happened 2,000 years ago. And here's why. Because if the resurrection is true, then my faith stands, 
And if the resurrection is not true, then my faith falls apart. At the end of the day, when you look at history and you look at what happened 2,000 years ago, if the resurrection is true, then my faith stands. But if it's not true, my faith falls apart. In other words, if they discover that they discover the body of Jesus, they discover, hey, it's all a joke and Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, my faith falls apart. But if we have undeniable proof that Jesus really did rise from the dead, then my faith is bolstered regardless of the doubts that are around me. And by the way, this is, um, this is the only, th- uh, uh, the resurrection is the only thing you can say this about, okay? Like think back to all the Bible stories, you know, right? If they, um, if they, for whatever reason, found out that Goliath, the giant, wasn't really a giant. Like let's say they found some, you know, they did some digging and they found out actually Goliath was like five feet, eight inches tall. He wasn't really a giant. It was kind of an exaggeration. If they found that out, for us Christians, that's not great news, but we'll be okay. You know what I mean? Like, like we'll be fine. Like, like if Goliath wasn't a giant, it's okay. We'll be all right. The church will s- still keep going. Or let's say they found out, you know, the walls of Jericho, we were singing about that, like marching around the walls, you know, and then the walls fell. Let's say they discovered that the walls didn't actually fall because people of Israel uh, marched around them. They actually fell because they were poorly built, you know, and then there was like an earthquake. And so it was like, whoops, they fell. And it was kind of a coincidence. If we found that out today, we'd be okay. You know, it wouldn't be great but we'd be fine, like we'd make it through. But if they find the body of Jesus, guys, we're done. Like our faith is built on the resurrection or take the opposite. Let's say they discovered today. They discovered beyond the shadow of a doubt that Goliath was actually nine feet, nine inches tall. He indeed was a giant, okay? And we have undeniable proof that Goliath was actually a giant. That doesn't really change things, does it? Like your friends that have doubts, it's not like you go to them and say, well, guess what? Goliath was a giant. You know, it's not like they're gonna be like, I wanna come to church now. You know, it's like that wouldn't change anything. People would go like, well, that's pretty cool, but it doesn't really move the needle. Or let's say they discover that like beyond the shadow of a doubt, when the people of God marched around Jericho, the walls fell and that's why it happened. It's not like your friends or your doubts are all of a sudden taken care of. Like, well, now I believe. Now I don't have any questions. Now let's go out in the streets and tell everyone about Jesus because the walls actually fell. Like that doesn't change anything. But if we know, like not just kind of believe, but if we actually believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, guys, that changes everything. Here's another way to put it. The Christian faith hinges on the validity of the resurrection. Everything that we believe hinges on one event that happened 2,000 years ago, and it's the resurrection. If it happened, we have a firm faith. If it didn't happen, we should just pack up and go home. And I'm not the only one that thinks this, by the way. I want to read, um, this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, The guy that wrote this was a guy named Paul, and he was writing it to people that were asking about the resurrection. And this is what he said in, in verse 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, let's pretend that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Isn't that crazy? A pastor stood up and said, hey, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why am I even here? And then he goes on and says, and if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then your faith is useless. And he goes on, more than that, then we are found to be false witnesses about God. In other words, we are lying about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And then he goes on, verse 19, it says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. 
In other words, if we just believe in Jesus because it makes us feel better right now, guys, we should be pitied. Paul was so confident in the resurrection that he said, if it's not true, we should pack up and go home. If it's not true, we should be most pitied. He built everything on one event, and it was the resurrection of Jesus. So that kind of begs the question, okay, so why don't people believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And you probably have an answer to that, right? And your friends probably have an answer to this. Why don't people believe in the resurrection of Jesus? I think logically, here's the reason. Uh, because the unexplainable, there we go, the unexplainable is unbelievable, right? If I can't explain it, then I'm not really going to tend to believe it. Right? In other words, this, by the way, is kind of the foundation of science, which I think is awesome. I think God loves science. God's the like, creator of science. And so I think he loves it when we look for an explanation because we're looking for the truth of who God is. And so here we would say, if I can't explain it, then I have a tough time believing it. The unexplainable is simply unbelievable. So then when we look at the resurrection, we go, well, I can't really explain how someone rose from the dead. Right? So it, because it's unexplainable, it's kind of unbelievable. Um, for instance, let's say that, uh, let's pretend you had a buddy of yours that came up to you and he said, hey, um, the other day, you're not going to believe this, okay? The other day I got so like excited about life. I got so pumped that I started running and while I was running, I started to fly. No, for real, like my feet left the ground. It wasn't like a big jump because I've jumped before, okay? But like I started levitating and then I was like flying through the air. I was like Dragon Ball Z, y'all. I was like, ah! and I was like flying and it was awesome. It was so good. The wind was in my hair. I was like chilling with the birds, you know? And it's like, I was going, I was flying. If your friend told you this, you'd look at him and you'd say, well, you might've been high, but you weren't flying, Okay. <laughs> It's like, I don't know if I can say that, but anyways, it's like, you weren't flat. Like, I know you weren't flat. Why? Why would you say that? Because it's unexplainable. There is no explanation. We have never seen anyone fly like that before. Therefore, we don't believe it. So no matter how convincing your friend might be, because it's unexplainable, it is unbelievable. We simply don't believe it. But there's one exception to this. And the exception is, that the undeniable is greater than the unexplainable. The undeniable is greater than the unexplainable. In other words, seeing is believing, right? If you see something, even if I can't explain it, I can't deny what I've seen. The event that I've seen accounts for the science I can't explain. I was doing some uh, research. I, I um, discovered this article by a Yale physicist um, which means he's super smart, okay? He's, because, uh, you know, UGA, you got to be pretty good to get in UGA, but Yale, you got to be a little bit smarter, okay? So he's a Yale physicist. I'm a UGA pastor, okay? So he's kind of a step up for me. So this Yale physicist named Dr. Robert Adair, you can look it up, it's pretty cool. He did this, um, he did this study. He wanted to find out uh, the probability of hitting a 90 mile an hour fastball. He wanted to see, you know, is it possible to hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball, and what are the chances of hitting a 90-mile-an-hour fastball? So he did all this research. His data was, like, airtight. He was super smart. He was, you know, considering everything from, like, where the pitcher stands to how, you know, quickly you got to actually, like, swing the bat and, you know, your mind actually kind of adjusting and judging where's the ball and then hitting it. And here's what he discovered. He discovered that um, to hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball, it is physically impossible to hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. He even went as, uh, so far as to say this. You have a better chance of hitting a 90-mile-an-hour fastball by stepping up to the plate, 
blindfolding yourself, holding the bat, guessing when the, patch, when, the, when the pitcher actually throws it, and then swinging. You have a better chance of doing that than actually hitting a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. So he concluded it is physically impossible to hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. Okay? Here's my question to you. Do you believe him? Well, but he's a, he's, doc, he's a doctor, Yale physicist. He's super smart. Why don't you believe him? Because you've seen it, right? It doesn't happen that often with the Braves, but for other teams, it happens all the time. Okay? It's like we've seen it happen, right? I love the Braves, but anyways, uh, it's like a, it hurts to love them. It does, because we've seen it happen. In fact, I've seen people hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. I've seen, be, uh, seen people hit a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. And so even though we can't explain it with science, we believe that it happened because we've seen it. The event that I've seen accounts for the science I can't explain. So if you're here tonight and you're looking for me to explain to you how someone could rise from the dead, I have bad news for you. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, I, I, I don't know. But I think that the resurrection is undeniable. And so even though I can't explain it, I believe that it happened because I believe it's undeniable. And so how is the resurrection undeniable? This is the question maybe you're asking. This is a question my dad was asking. This is a question I was asking in the midst of my doubts. This might be the question that your friends are asking. How on earth is the resurrection undeniable? And here's the really cool part. Um, you're not the first to ask this question. Literally 2,000 years ago, when word was spreading about the resurrection, this is what the people in Corinth were asking. They wanted Paul to answer this question. They said, Paul, tell us about the resurrection. How on earth is the resurrection undeniable? And he did it. He literally wrote it down right here. So we're going to look together. Um, if you've got your Bible or maybe it's on your phone or an iPad, or you read it on your watch or something, I don't know. But anyways, you can pull out your Bible. We're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15. This is Paul's response to that question. And if you've got one of the Bibles here, it's on page 1,154. Page 1154. So um, starting in verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15, they were asking Paul, Paul, how is the resurrection undeniable? And this is what Paul said. Verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, Paul, by the way, this letter is so cool. Because um, if you've ever asked a question of someone who's like smarter than you or a mentor of yours or whatever, that's what the people of Corinth were doing. They wrote to Paul these long questions. And uh, if you've ever wondered, the book of 1 Corinthians is the first letter written to the Corinthians, super original name anyways, but um, it was the letter that Paul wrote back to them answering their questions. And one of the questions was about the resurrection. So verse three says, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the most important thing for you to know, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, which is Paul. He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So right here, Paul was writing out, here's my defense, here's why I think the resurrection is undeniable. And we're going to focus, we could focus on so much, we're going to focus on two things tonight. Number one, we're going to focus on that phrase, according to the scriptures, Paul said Christ 
uh, died according to the scripture, he was buried, he rose again according to the scriptures, and that he was seen. So we're going to talk about according to the scriptures, and then we're going to talk about what it means to be seen, we're going to talk about some eyewitnesses. Okay, so let's talk about that according to the scriptures. This is so fascinating to me. Uh, when you look at scripture, it's really split up into two parts, Old Testament, New Testament. And as it relates to Jesus, the Old Testament had all these prophecies about who Jesus would be. And then the New Testament kind of points back to who Jesus actually is. And so um, I want to talk a little bit about the Old Testament prophecies. Hundreds and thousands of years before uh, Jesus was born, people wrote about what Jesus was going to be like. And these are called prophecies. And when Jesus stepped on the scene, he fulfilled many of these prophecies. Now, you know, you could argue back and forth on how many prophecies that he fulfilled. The most conservative estimate says about 60, 60 prophecies. Uh, those that maybe are a little bit more gracious say that he fulfilled up to 300 prophecies. So it's somewhere between 60 and 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. So the question is, well, what's the probability that someone would fulfill at least 60 prophecies? Um, the answer is like, we don't even know. It's just the number's too big. So let's just pretend Jesus only fulfilled eight. Let's just pretend it's only eight. Um, the the uh, probability that one person would randomly fulfill eight of these prophecies is one in 100 quintillion. Okay? Now, I don't have 100 quintillion dollars, so I don't know how much that is. And if I did have 100 quintillion dollars, I'd be out you. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know that I'd be here. But... Um, 100 quintillion is a lot, and so there was a guy that tried to break it down. What's the probability of one and one, 100 quintillion? What does that look like? And here's what he said. He said, imagine you took the state of Texas, which is a really big state, and you filled it with silver dollars. Literally every square inch was silver dollars, and then you stacked it about to your knees, okay, about two feet high. If you just stacked the state of Texas with silver dollars up to your knees, and then you took one of those 100 quintillion silver dollars, and you painted it red, and then you took that one and you had a really good arm, and you threw it deep into the middle of Texas, and then you just kind of swirled it all together, and then you sent one person into the state of Texas blindfolded to kind of walk around, and then, I'd watch out for the stage, walk around, and then he gets somewhere, and then while blindfolded, he reaches down, pulls up a silver dollar, and it's the red silver dollar. That is the probability of one in eight of these prophecies, and Jesus fulfilled at least 60 that's crazy. And here's one of them. This, is, um, this one's from Isaiah 53. Isaiah looked forward and said that, that Jesus, the Messiah, the suffering servant, would be, um, he would be pierced for our transgressions, he'd be crushed for our iniquities, and by his stripes or by his wounds he'd be healed. So he'd be pierced, crushed, and have stripes or wounds on his body. Now here's what's fascinating. The way Jesus died was he was crucified, which means he was pierced, in his wrist or hand, and also his ankles or his feet, and then he was pierced, of course, in his side. Not only that, Jesus, the way that someone dies via crucifixion is actually asphyxiation, which means that you choke to death or you can't breathe, which is why crucifixion is such an awful way to die, because what you would do is you would nail your victim to a tree, and then that victim began to lose their breath, and the only way to breathe again was to push up on the nails on their feet and pull up on the nails on their hands to then take a breath to then go back down and start dying again and go back and forth and back and forth and this is how someone would die. So Jesus was pierced and his lungs were being crushed which is asphyxiation. And then finally it says by his stripes we are healed. Jesus went right before he went to the cross he was actually whipped 
uh, 40 minus 1 times, 39 times for all you math people out there, okay? And the reason they called it 40 minus 1 is because 40 was enough to kill someone, and they didn't want to kill Jesus. They wanted him to be like super close to death before crucifying him. So they whipped him 39 times, which means that he had stripes all over his body. So here's Jesus being pierced, crushed, and having stripes on his body. Now, if you're a skeptic like me and my dad, you would hear that and go, okay, maybe Isaiah, when he wrote this stuff down, he was just guessing that maybe the person who was going to fulfill this was going to be crucified. That's what I thought. Um, By the way, he wrote this at about 600 BC, 600 years before Jesus was born. So it's like maybe he saw someone, you know, he's like chilling out in his back patio, talking to God and like, I don't know, maybe he's going to be crucified, pierced, crushed, you know, and he does that. That's what I thought. So then I started doing research. When did they start crucifying people? So I went up to my dad and I said, dad, when did they start crucifying people? Which is like, you know, that's the question you ask your dad too. Um, So I was like, dad, when did they start crucifying people? And he said, well, the Romans started crucifying people about 150 or 200 BC. Uh, But the Persians were the ones who started it. And they actually started crucifying people in 400 BC. Which means Isaiah wrote that 200 years before anyone even thought of crucifixion. And yet Jesus fulfilled all three of those things in that one prophecy about himself before crucifixion was even on the table. And that's one of the over 60 prophecies that he fulfilled. So the chances of someone dying, being buried, rising again, according to these prophecies, is astronomical. Okay, And then the New Testament writing. Here's what I love. Um, A lot of people think the resurrection is like made up. People that don't believe are like, I can't believe, and so they must have made the whole thing up. Uh, So let's pretend, okay, let's just pretend that we made it up. Let's pretend we're the disciples and we made it up, okay? Uh, Most of the New Testament is written by the disciples. You would think that if we made this whole thing up, we'd stop talking about it so much, right? If I'm lying about something, I don't want people to find out that I'm lying about it, so I'm probably not going to mention it. But here's what's crazy. In the New Testament, there's 27 letters that make up the New Testament. 20 of the 27 explicitly mention the resurrection of Jesus, many of them in the first couple sentences. It's like when they start writing, they're like, oh, and you got to know this, Jesus was raised from the dead. They can't help themselves from talking about 20 out of 27. What about the other seven? Well, for the other seven, they talked about how Jesus is Lord, and they talked about eternal life. So here we have all of these New Testament writers, and they can't get over talking about the resurrection. Why would they make such a big deal of the resurrection? And that leads us to the next thing, which is the eyewitnesses. See, there's a lot of people, and you might know of some, who have died for their beliefs. People have done that throughout history. And um, that's not just Christians. There's um, Muslims that have died for their beliefs. There's Jewish people that have died for their beliefs. There's Hindus, Buddhists. A lot of people have died for what they believe. Here's what makes this different. These people didn't die for what they believe. They died for what they saw. That's the difference. This isn't just you and I in a room saying, well, I believe that, so I'm going to die for it. These are people that saw the resurrected Jesus, and then died claiming that that was true. And so Paul actually lists out a few of them. He talks about the 12 disciples. Here's this really fascinating. When um, these 12 disciples, some of you might know this, they followed Jesus for about three years. And then he was arrested and eventually led to be crucified. And when he was arrested, the followers of Jesus fled. 
You might um, remember the story of Peter who denied Jesus, right? He was so scared when they just arrested Jesus, much less when they killed him. But when they arrested Jesus, he was so scared that even though he'd followed this guy for three years, he, he denied ever knowing Jesus. There's another story. This is true. It's in the book of Mark. When uh, they were in the garden and, um, and the soldiers started kind of like rallying up around Jesus and they began to take Jesus away to be arrested. And there were people that were around Jesus and one of them was like a young kid and he was so scared because they arrested his leader, Jesus. He was so scared that one of, the, um, one of like the Roman soldiers actually grabbed him, grabbed him by the tunic. And he got so scared that he wanted to get out of there as quick as possible. So he like, whoop, whoop. And he got out of the tunic and he ran naked. It's in scripture. He ran naked. I just imagine this kid streaking through Jerusalem. He's just like, ah! You know, he's like, get me out of there. He is so scared to death because their leader that they've been following for three years was just arrested, probably going to die. So what do you think is going to happen to the followers? They're probably going to die too. So they all fled. In fact, when you look at the scene, when Jesus was actually crucified, some of the women were there, and the only disciple that was there was John. Everyone else had fled. So you have these 12 guys, scared to death, running away, literally naked. They are so scared of being caught, and then something happens. These disciples that were hiding out, all of a sudden, three days after Jesus died and was brutally murdered, they're in the streets, and they're talking about how their leader was resurrected. In fact, Peter, in his very first message, he's pointing the finger, and he's like, you crucified Jesus, but he is alive. Like, what would it take for someone who was scared to death to start pointing the finger at people and talking about how Jesus is alive again? What would it take for someone to go, just a complete 180 and talk about the resurrected Jesus. What event explains that other than the resurrection? But then it gets better. Not for them, but for us. Because all 12 of these disciples died. Not for what they believed, but for what they saw. Meaning these guys were threatened under penalty of death to say, stop saying that Jesus was resurrected and all of them held to it and died for what they saw. Now, here's the deal. If I made up the whole resurrection thing, if me and 11 of my buddies got together, you want to make up a really cool hoax, you know? I was like, yeah, let's do it. What if Jesus, you know, what if he was like alive? That sounds cool. Awesome. Okay. So then we make it up. You'd think that if someone's putting a gun to my head saying, tell us you made the whole thing up. Guys, I give, you know what I mean? You think at least one of the 12 would have admitted we made the whole thing up and yet every single one of them died, not for what they believed, but for what they claimed to have seen. And they all died. So then we move on to the 500. I love when Paul writes this. Paul says, um, Jesus appeared alive again to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And then he includes this phrase. He says, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep, which is a really nice way of saying some of them, they died. So that's not good, okay? But it's like most of them are still alive. Now, why on earth would Paul say 500, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep, some have died? The reason Paul said this was because he wrote this Shortly after Jesus rose again, in other words, Paul is saying, if you don't believe me, ask one of them. They saw it. They're still alive. Go ask them. They're the ones that saw the resurrected Jesus, and then these 500, most of them, 
Just like the disciples died, not for what they believed, but for what they saw with their own eyes. And then we go on, and, and he mentions James. I love James in the Bible. James was the brother of Jesus. Do you guys know Jesus had a brother? He, he did, seriously. J, uh, uh, Jesus had a brother, actually had brothers and sisters, and we find that out from Scripture. One of the brothers was a guy named James. Now, here's what's fascinating, okay? Uh, while Jesus was walking around performing miracles and teaching and getting his 12 disciples, none of his family were his disciples. James was not a disciple of Jesus. In fact, there's like one record of Scripture when um, people go up to James and the rest of the family, and they essentially say something like, your brother is a little crazy, okay? Can you calm him down? And James, like, and all of the brothers and sisters are saying, yeah, he is a little weird. We can't really do anything about it. They were embarrassed about their brother Jesus. Um, now, I have two older brothers, okay, David and Michael. Um, if David, my oldest brother, uh, claimed that he was the son of God, uh, I'd be a little embarrassed too, you know what I mean? It's like, it would take a lot to convince me that David was the son of God, okay? Because I've lived with David, okay? It's like, I know that he's not the son of God. Even if he performed a lot of miracles, I probably still wouldn't buy it. I'd be like, I don't know. And that's exactly what happened with James. James didn't follow Jesus. James didn't really care about the teachings of Jesus until a few days after Jesus was crucified. And then James, <laughs> the brother of Jesus, starts calling Jesus not his Lord, or not his brother, but his Lord and his Savior. What would it take to convince you that your brother or your sister was the Son of God? See, for James, he was convinced. And I think the only thing that convinced someone is if they claim they're going to die and rise again and they actually pull it off. And by the way, James, the brother of Jesus, he died too. Not for what he believed, but for what he saw with his own eyes. And then finally we get to Paul. This is the last one. Paul's the guy that wrote all this. Paul was a Jewish rabbi. And um, a lot of times when we think of Christians in the first century or Christians that lived during the time of Jesus, we think of them kind of like Christians today. In other words, they have these big buildings and they have fancy music and great speakers and you can make a living being a pastor. And that's what we think of when we think um, when we think of Christians in the first century, that was not the case. Christians of the first century, their life was in danger the moment they said they believed in the resurrected Jesus. But you know whose life wasn't in danger is it was the Jewish people. Actually, the Jewish rabbis were kind of like the famous preachers of the day. There was one guy, he was really famous, his name was Hillel. Hillel is considered one of the most famous rabbis of all time. Hillel is quoted as having answered this question when someone asked him. Someone asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And Hillel is the first one to have said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when Jesus answered that question, he was referring back to Hillel saying, Hillel got it right. The most important commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Hillel is considered the greatest rabbi of all time. Hillel, the greatest rabbi of all time, mega preacher, okay, you got that in your head, trained a guy named Gamaliel who then trained another guy named Paul. Paul was next in line to be the greatest rabbi of all time which meant that fame, notoriety, popularity, people respecting you, people looking at you, you having basically anything you want was Paul's. He had it in the palm of his hand. And then a bunch of people started claiming that one of these other rabbis named Jesus died and actually came back to life. And Paul saw this as an opportunity. He said, I know what I'll do. I'll make a name for myself. I'll kill all of these people that claim that Jesus came back to life because obviously he didn't, 
right? It's unexplainable. So, of course, he didn't rise from the dead. So Paul goes on a mission to be the greatest rabbi of all time, to be the one who snuffs out the Christians once and for all. And then Paul sees the resurrected Jesus. And everything changes. And he had fame and notoriety and whatever he wanted. And then he joins the people that he was trying to kill. Not because of what he believed, but because of what he saw. He saw the resurrected Jesus. And then Paul, just like everyone else, died. He was beheaded by Nero in Rome. Not for what he believed, but for what he saw. And so person after person after person had life change when they encountered the resurrected Jesus. And so when Paul writes this, it's very personal to him. He said, this is the most important thing you could know. Our entire faith hinges on one event that happened 2,000 years ago. And if it's true, that changes everything. And if it's not, then we should pack up and go home. Because if Jesus actually rose from the dead, you know what that means? That means you and I have a heavenly father. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, that means God knows me. He knows the number of hairs on my head. He knows all the things that I've done, all the things that I'm ashamed of. I am fully known and I'm fully loved by him. You want to know how I know that? Because God, the God of the universe, if it's true that Jesus actually died and rose again, the God of the universe sent his son for me. And he died for me and for you. And then three days later, he came back to life to prove everything that he said. That I matter to him. That he loves me and he forgives me. And that death is not the end. <laughs> See, I'm not a Christian because David defeated the giant. I'm a Christian because Jesus defeated the grave. That's why I believe what I believe. That's the anchor I hold on to. That's how I know in the midst of every doubt that I run across, I can go back to the resurrection and I am so grateful for the disciples who died, who were murdered because of what they saw. Because that gives me confidence that it's not just a story. It's true. And if it's true, that changes everything. So I want to pray for us. So, Father, there are, uh, I don't know, I think there's two groups of people tonight. Maybe there's some that they believe in you, they trust in you, they, they follow you, but they've had doubts before, and they've wrestled with the doubts, and they've struggled with the doubts, and maybe they felt ashamed to actually bring up these doubts before. They felt like they couldn't do it, and they definitely couldn't do it in church. And tonight, you told them something. You told them that you're not afraid of their doubts, And that the thing that we can run to, no matter the doubt that we have, is the resurrection. Because if that's true, that changes everything. And so tonight, I know what you did. I know there are some in here that they've believed in you, but tonight there's a fire in their soul. They say, this isn't just some made-up church story. This is the resurrected God. The God of everything that would give his life for me so that I could have life with him. Thank you for doing that tonight. And then there's others in the room 
They walked in here tonight and their friend invited them. Maybe they've been coming for the past couple weeks just because they want to hang out with people, but they don't really buy into the whole God thing. They don't buy into the whole Jesus thing. And, and honestly, they're smarter than that. Candidly, they're probably smarter than me. But tonight you did something in their heart too. You told them that their questions have answers. You've told them the doubt that they have has a resurrection. And that Jesus actually died for them too. And he did not stay dead, he rose again. And so there are some that up until tonight, they haven't really given you any thought, any mention, but tonight they want to know more. Maybe there's even some that'll say, man, I've been, I've been running from God, but tonight I'm ready to come home. I couldn't get past my doubts, but tonight I see the cross and I see the resurrection and I'm in. And I just want to say to you, if you're in this room and that's you, don't leave tonight. Don't leave this building before you go tell someone that. Go tell the person who brought you. You can go tell Austin. You can tell me. I'll be here afterwards. And Just don't leave here without telling them that. Without saying, hey, tonight he was talking about Jesus. I didn't really care about Jesus until tonight and I want to know more. I think I want to follow him. I think if it's true that he really died for me and he rose again, I want to follow him. And so would you do that, God, for those in the room? And, and tonight, God, we're just going to respond to you and we're going to say thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for what is undeniable. We can't explain it, but it's undeniable that Jesus died for us and he rose again. And because of that, we trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.